The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Once again, it's very complex for me to talk about it because I know that there are some people who go to protest and I know how scary it must feel to protest when you don't know what happens to you after that. But for those who decide to stay silent, I, I don't think there's a lot of respect. And I'm telling this here, you know, in a cosy place as I ran away, saying that people who are experienced the bombings, their views are, of course, much worse than mine. And even it doesn't matter whether they are Russian speaking, Ukrainian speaking, or even international students, because Kharkiv is a home to a lot of international students too. Um, I don't think that they're like, they're good Russians, not all Russians, or any of that. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 8th, 2022. Katerina is a fourth-year law student at a university in Kharkiv, Ukraine. At least, she was until a few days ago. That's when the Russian army came in and started bombarding the town she grew up in and studies in. I met her on Sunday on Twitter, of all places, when she posted some comments that I thought were particularly interesting. We got to chatting, and before I knew it, we were on a recorded line in the Virtual Jungle studio talking about life as a Russian-speaking Ukrainian in Kharkiv before and after the invasion, talking about getting out of town and ultimately out of the country and being a refugee law student in an adjacent country. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 8th, a conversation with a refugee law student from Kharkiv. So I want to start with just who you are. Uh, we met uh, this morning, with this morning, my time on, on Twitter. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you and where are you and how did you come to be there? Hello and thank you for your invitation. My name is Katerina and I'm a law student. I'm a fourth year law student in Yaroslav Mudry National Law University, which is located in Kharkiv, Ukraine. I have studied there and I have lived in the city for almost my entire life. And currently I'm located in Czech Republic because together with my mom and brother, we had to flee the city. 
All right, so there's a lot to unpack there, but I wanted to start with, for those listeners who don't uh, have Slavic languages or speak or understand the demographics of Ukraine at all, you have a Ukrainian, a very Ukrainian sounding last name, but you have grown up in a uh, city that is in the eastern part of Ukraine, which people often think of as a sort of Russian-speaking section, and in uh, Kharkiv, which the Russians you know, sort of describe as this sort of occupied Ukrainian territory where Russians are mistreated. So I, I'm curious how you describe yourself ethnically. Are you Russian-speaking Ukrainian? Are you Ukrainian? Are you Russian? How do you describe yourself in the Ukrainian demographic discussion? Yes, that's a, a very complex question. Thank you for that. But I have, before I have to just say that, you know, all the views are my personal. I do not represent, you know, every person who lives in Kharkiv. It's entirely my perspective. I cannot, I'm not a historian, I'm not a politician, I'm a law student, um, and frankly, I'm not that great at law, but Kharkiv currently is a Russian-speaking city, but it hasn't been always this way. Um, if you have heard of it, during the Soviet times, during the Russian Empire rule, uh, there were politics of Russification, basically banning Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian art. Probably the most notable example is the example of the 20s in the USSR, when um, you know the Soviets came to power and Kharkiv became the capital of the Soviet Republic. They started encouraging a Ukrainian uh, literature, Ukrainian culture, as they did in all of the concurred republics. But then in 30s, the situation got worse, and suddenly a lot of poets, a lot of writers, artists got repressed, and also there was the Holodomor, the genocide of Ukrainian people. So Kharkiv, which was um, a very Ukrainian-speaking city, from that point, it was a turning point for it to become a Russified city. Basically, the, the idea of Soviet Union was that it's, you know, there is no nationality, there's only class in Soviet Union, but there was a nationality. It was just that everybody had to speak Russian. Like my mom, she lived in Tajikistan, for instance, or Chelyabinsk, and she spoke their Russian. So Kharkiv is indeed a Russian-speaking city. But if you go to countryside, a lot of people speak, for instance, Surzhik, which is a combination of Ukrainian and Russian. It's, it's considered slightly illiterate. I, I wouldn't treat it as illiterate, but it's people adopting words from Russian and Ukrainian. Some people speak Ukrainian very clearly, but Kharkiv is a Russified city. And many big cities in the east of Ukraine are. But still, you know, I went to Russian-speaking school back when it was, it was possible. I treated Russian as native language until the revolution of dignity uh, and the war uh, that was uh, started in 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. But, you know... And how old were you then? I was 14 or 13, but I was 
I was watching the news and I was very worried. I, I, I said, my mom, look, I want to go and protest in Kharkiv, but of course she didn't allow me to do that. But some of my friends actually did it. But uh, for me, that was a turning point uh, of my identification. Like I have, I have mostly Ukrainian roots, but I have a um, small um, percentage of Russian roots, but I have never identified as Russian. And honestly, I do not know any person of my age who has ever said, I want to live in Russia. And some who do, they just go and study there, uh, but nobody wants to be, I, I don't know any, you know, sane person who has ever wanted for Ukraine to, to become part of Russia. I know that maybe some older people who are nostalgic about Soviet Union, maybe some of them might express anything like that, but I was lucky enough not to hear such suggestions, but even the conservative people, they, they don't want to be part of Russia. Even though majority of people speak Russian, we consume some of Russian culture. I distance myself from it, but a lot of people like listen to Russian singers, like read Russian literature, but still identify as Ukrainians, especially after the revolution of dignity. So you think of yourself as Ukrainian plain and simple, and in 2014, you kind of made a decision that you regarded Ukrainian, not Russian, as your native language. Is that is that a fair summary? Um, not really. I, I still, I, I'd say I'm not strong enough to switch to Ukrainian. I still speak Russian mostly. I try to speak Ukrainian. I speak Ukrainian, uh, for instance, our law obliges us, like, uh, people who, who work, you know, in restaurants, they have to speak Ukrainian with you, and I always do that. But my family, it speaks in Russian. Most of my friends do. Uh, but I try to switch, um, sorry, to, you know, to use as much Ukrainian as possible. But it, it's difficult for me, not because I don't know the language, but because, because um, everybody speaks and, you know, you have to switch constantly. Mm -hmm. But but it doesn't mean that I'm Russian. It never meant. Right. And actually, like, even if I, I talk to someone from Russia and I suddenly use Ukrainian words, they, they just don't understand what I said. Uh, even if it's something that I thought could be very easy to understand. So in Ukraine, law is an undergraduate degree, right? I, I, so in the United States, it's a, you know, something people do after, after taking their, uh, the bachelor's degree, but in most of Europe, and I assume in Ukraine, it's, it's your initial university degree. Is that right? Yes, this is correct. And so you're basically in your fourth year of what we would call college or university. And all of a sudden there's a war and the Russians are, are attacking your hometown. Yes. Uh, so, sorry, but for there just to be no doubt or anything, my law degree is completely taught in Ukrainian. We also have English, but it's just all the university education is in Ukrainian. And of course, when I get to my university, I speak Ukrainian there, not Russian. Interesting. Okay, so let's back up. How many weeks ago 
were you just a law student in Kharkiv and, and, you know, everything was normal? It was actually, I think, a week ago, a little bit more, but the war broke on February 24. And, you know, a lot of people in Ukraine say that now I don't, I don't know what day week it is. I just know what day work it is. So yeah, it broke out pretty recently. We were actually on a break and just about to go back uh, to university to seminars and lectures. But currently we are on a break. It's a two-week break, um, and we'll see what goes after that. And just to be clear, you know, U.S. intelligence was saying as loudly as it could that this war was coming. A lot of people didn't seem to believe it. Some people did seem to believe it. How did you react? What was your understanding of the situation as the Olympics were winding down and the United States is saying, you know, there's going to be an invasion of Ukraine. And, uh, and a lot of people were kind of doubting that was your, did you have a sense of this war as coming or did it uh, really take you by surprise? Well, here I can only speak on my behalf because everybody had their different moods. I myself, I'm a very paranoid person. So I, I've i actually booked a trip to Lviv on February 24th because I was afraid that after, especially after watching, uh, not watching, I couldn't find any like uh, will to watch that speech. But after reading the bullet points of Putin's speech, I've realized that he's actually uh, gonna start the war I just didn't expect it to go that way. What I thought his strategy would be is to start from the uh, LPR and DPR um, and then extend. But if you want to, I can share like the, the very moment how I found out. But just just to, to make sure I was um, all of the previous week, I was very stressed. I was always reading the news, reading the analysis. Um, I couldn't focus on my work. I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't sleep well. I was watching like the, the, the UN meetings. So I was really afraid, but I was hoping that, you know, that that is some, I don't know, geopolitics or something. But as it got closer and closer, I stacked my clothes to Lviv. I, I just said that I, I wanted to go on a break to Lviv for my mental health and my parents actually were planning to go to Egypt the next day. But I remember very clearly, you know, on February 23rd, uh, we went grocery shopping. My brother and I played basketball and then I went to bed. I couldn't fall asleep. I was watching the, the UN meeting and then I read the news that their civilian flights are restricted in Ukraine and that there are shillings in Mariupol, which is Ukrainian-controlled territory near LPR and DPR. So it meant that they started attacking Ukrainian-controlled territory, but it is still far away from my home. At that day, I decided to stay with my parents because my mental health was not in the best condition. So I go to them and I say, look, they closed the sky. You cannot go to Egypt. It seems like the war has started. We have to pack now and go somewhere. Let's go to Lviv. 
And my mom is, you know, very strict person. She says, you're being paranoid, go to sleep. And then she wakes me up in two hours, I guess, and says, she doesn't say anything like the war has started. She just says, pack everything we are living. And I, I was afraid to ask what's going on I I understood but I just didn't want to ask I didn't want to, to hear the the actual words um so I I think I, I didn't answer your question properly but um I'm sorry I was slightly no 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 you answered it very fully so Kharkiv and and Lvov are not close they're you know a kind of opposite ends of the country uh, where did you go once you decided you were getting out of town? I also must be very clear here. Um, I, I try not to, to share the roots because a lot of Ukrainians are trying, especially people from Kharkiv, uh, trying to flee. Like a lot of my friends are currently on the boat. We just, we just went to our country house, far from Kharkiv, but there was still, we could hear explosions distantly and we could hear once there was a, a, a big explosion near us and it felt like something hit our roof twice. Um, and that was the moment we, we lived at that country house in fear. We were afraid to go upstairs. I was afraid to walk around. And, and we realized that we cannot go on like this. So how long were you, how long were you there before you left the country entirely? Actually, I think it was two or three days. Uh, but we understand, uh, like, we left my uncle and our cat there so he could take care of her. I, I feel that it's, I regret it to an extent, but they're relatively safe. It's a safe city. Um, nothing is going on there because, I, you know, sometimes it's good when you buy something, some property in the middle of nowhere. But still, we, we then, we had, we traveled for three maybe days. I don't know. Everything was so mixed up, you know, the day and night. I almost didn't sleep. Then I woke up lately. So we traveled a lot, but eventually we went to Czech Republic with my brother, my mom and I. And, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, refugees in Poland, refugees in Germany, refugees in some of the Baltic countries, less about Ukrainian refugees in the Czech Republic. Why did you end up there? Uh, why did you go there? And how has the reception been among Czech people? I would say this, that we just had friends and they have helped us a lot with accommodation. Uh, but uh, formally, I'm still not a refugee um, in Ukraine. Uh, there is this rule that you can travel to European Union for 19 days, 90 days, uh, without visa, unless you want to work there, but you can stay there for 90 days. So currently I'm just using this rule, but I, if I do this, I, for instance, don't have, uh, you know, the, the Medicare. I don't have some of the privileges people who decided to, to become refugees here have. Uh, but the reception is okay overall. I, I haven't seen anybody saying anything cool. I've seen Ukrainian flags in different places. I've seen that they're trying to, uh, you know, to find and to carry the humanitarian help to Ukraine. 
but you know our town is a little bit you know it's not a big town it's not Prague so it's not like there where there are huge marches as in many European capitals but I haven't met any xenophobia I was you know treated very well uh, and I hope it it will continue and, and what are your plans I mean are you just planning to wait out the war and then go back or do you just not make plans at this point because the situation is so uncertain I'm currently trying to to wait and see because the positions inside of my family differ uh, like I have one plan my parents have another plan and we're currently you know debating but I'm trying just you know I'm my main goal now is to finish the university so I have my diploma uh, because without this diploma, I cannot become a lawyer anywhere like in Ukraine or in the EU or anywhere else. So I hope that, I don't know, I hope that I will be and my colleagues will be able to, to get the diploma. Uh, I'm also trying to work remotely, but Currently, everybody was busy, of course, with other things. But currently, I'm trying to figure uh, the plan out. But you know, I'm also trying to to realize what's going on. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I know it's bad, especially when people are suffering in Ukraine. But I'm just very grateful that I'm under the peaceful sky, and you know that I, I can walk. And when I hear the sirens, it doesn't mean that I have to, you know go somewhere and hide. So I'm just trying to probably to relax for, for some time, but also thinking of plans for the future. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries 
and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare20. So I want to ask you about some of the Russian claims about Ukraine. Um, uh, If you listen to Vladimir Putin, the Ukrainian government is is a bunch of Nazis and fascists who are committing genocide against people like you, that is, Eastern Ukrainians who are Russian-speaking. So I I just want to ask you, first of all, as a Russian-speaking Eastern Ukrainian, do you feel oppressed by your government? I have actually, you know, when I talk about Kharkiv, for instance, I tell that I, I don't have proper words. And I think this is the case too. I think what he says is it's very disrespectful to people who have actually suffered the genocide. I think it's 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 not only cynical. I just think that it's I don't know human thing to say. I know that there are crimes against humanity. Like maybe you've heard of Izolatsa camp. They were even before the full escalation. That was the camp where people were imprisoned. And, you know, um, atrocities were made to them by uh, Russian-backed separatists or Russian occupants. But I I have never heard of anything like that. Actually, a lot of refugees have, after the 2014, they had to go to Kharkiv. And they, told, and they were much more radical in being Ukrainian supporters than I am. They said things, and I was like, why do you hate that culture that much? And, and now I see, because... They, 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 they have felt it on their own skin how, you know, how terrible that culture could be to them. So, I mean, even using the word genocide, like I've read somewhere that Lauterbacht, he actually is an important international law scholar. He actually was somewhat, you know, critical of that term because he thought that it could be used to manipulate as far as I understand and I think what he does is um, a clear manipulation and moreover when he you know um, you, you, you might have seen that the shilling of Saltivka it's the biggest sleeping district in Ukraine it's very huge there are a lot of families there are a lot of students there are a lot of people of my age who live there there is no strategical infrastructure and uh, what they do they just you know, cover it with guts. And that is in itself, it's against uh, the international law. So uh, those claims, they they have nothing in particular. Moreover, sometimes people who are Ukrainian speaking, they might get slightly oppressed here if they go to, you know, that district, you know. So I, I have never ever been discriminated for speaking Russian in my life, neither in Kharkiv, nor in Kiev, nor in Lviv, nor even in Zakarpatia, which is, you know, the 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 most the western region. So I, I that's completely made up and a very very cynical thing to say. And is there a 
you know, in the West now, there is a lot of admiration for President Zelensky and the way he has handled uh, events since the invasion. Uh, do you share that, or uh, is the view of him among Ukrainians more complicated? He seems like he's kind of a hero here, but I'm curious how how you guys think of him. For me, I I myself don't know how I should estimate him. I'm not like um, a war strategist, so I don't know what actions that he does are good, what are bad. But I know that my mom. Who used to hate him uh, is now she she admires him now and a lot of Ukrainians are supporting him because they see him as a leader who's responsible leader who is brave and uh, I'm not saying every Ukrainian feels so but there is much more respect you know when he came to power there were a lot of fears that he will you know give up Ukraine to um, Putin. But actually, he puts up a fight. So a lot of Ukrainians do feel uh, support for him. And it it goes from like, no matter who you voted for before, a lot of them do see him as a leader. And they joke also that the real leader of the free world and, you know, make up memes <laughs> about him. So, yeah, I think that it's true. Ukrainians here admire him for now. I'm interested in your and understanding that you only speak for yourself. How do you think about Russia, Russians, and I mean, obviously, you're you're opposed to the the current Russian regime, which is invading your country. That's an easy one. But what about the larger Ukrainian-Russian relationship? You're a Russian-speaking Ukrainian who feels very Ukrainian, and the Russian army is attacking your city. You know, what's your relationship with Russia as a country now? I think it's a very um, difficult question because I don't share the position a lot of people say it's just Putin. It's it's not a Russia. I feel like I mean somebody gets into you know the airplanes and somebody goes to work it's not just him and somebody enabled it made it possible whether people who are silent whether people who listen to russian propaganda like i've listened to several stories of my friends who have relatives in russia and they say like you know my grandmother called me and told me that you know putin isn't doing anything bad you know you must know that there's there always has been an imperialist relation between those two states. And Russia sees Ukraine as its part. Um, there is um, a scholar, I, I don't remember her name pretty well. I think she's um, a Pennsylvania student. Um, she's a black scholar who explains it very well that, you know, uh, Moscow sees Ukraine as essential part of Russia. And even like when I read Chekhov, for instance, who I love to read, when I see when he describes like, we went to Poltava, which is a Ukrainian city, but he treats it as a Russian city, I get, you know, I get uncomfortable. 
I can't say that I hate Russian people. Of course I cannot, but it, it's very difficult to sympathize with them uh, right now. Um, I know that, you know, there, for instance, among the volunteers here, there are some Russian people who decided to help and which is very admirable and which is legally punished by their state. But I, I, I don't buy this sentiment that it's only Putin, even Navalny, before before all of this, he used to be very, you know, he said that Crimea is not um, a butterbrot. It cannot be both Russian and Ukrainian, so it's like Russian. I don't know what are his views now, but it was, you know, it was not very negatively here. So I'm not saying anything bad about him, but I'm just saying that it, it, it's not coming from only one person. But once again, it's very complex for me to talk about it because I know that there are some people who go to protest and I know how scary it must feel to protest when you don't know what happens to you after that. But for those who decide to stay silent, I, I don't think there's a lot of respect. And I'm telling this here, you know, in the cosy place as I ran away, seeing that people who are experience the bombings, their views are, of course, much worse than mine. And even it doesn't matter whether they are Russian speaking, Ukrainian speaking, or even international students, because Kharkiv is a home to a lot of international students too. Um, I don't think that they are like, they're good Russians, not all Russians or any of that. So what about the West? On the one hand, you're in the Czech Republic, NATO country, you know, the West has, and the rest of the world has, you know, given a lot of uh, financial and military support to Ukraine, has also isolated Russia in a big way. On the other hand, uh, there's, you know, it has not intervened militarily. It has not come to the active defense of, of Ukraine uh, even, uh, and has not, you know, been willing to do the things that uh, President Zelensky has asked, like, you know, have a no-fly zone. Do you feel supported by the West, abandoned by the West, a bit of both? How how should people from Kharkiv feel about, you know, what Europe and the United States and the rest of the world have and have not been prepared to do to support them? You know, as somebody... Um you know, who's um, in the EU country right now, I, I cannot say, and especially somebody who has met a lot of people to like support and, you know, treat me well, I cannot say that, you know, I, I don't like the actions of the EU, but, you know, uh, a lot of people, especially the ones whose houses are bombed, they do feel, I don't know if they feel betrayed, uh, but they feel surprised because um, a no-fly zone is, something that Ukraine asks our military can cope on our own, at least that's from, I heard like some people who are more introduced to this topic than I am, but this is the most essential part. They cannot, you know, they, this is why, this is what enables what they do to Saltivka in Kharkiv and other parts of Kharkiv and other cities. So uh, we, we do feel, um, somewhat betrayed and of course I'm not even talking about you know how a lot of politicians before they they were really 
there are a, a lot of anti-corruption activists like Daria Kaliniuk, who you might have heard of when she confronted Boris Johnson. Uh, she, she said what Ukrainians feel very well. And just for those listeners who don't know, what, what tell us about what she said. She says actually about, like, you promised us support, but you didn't deliver it. You told that you will prosecute the, the oligarchs, but you are indeed doing it. She was very emotional. She basically says that while Ukrainian civilians die, NATO doesn't do a lot. Once again, I, I have discussed this issue with my friends, just being the self politicians. And I don't understand NATO's reasons, but I do understand that there are killings of the civilians that, you know, the, the scary part, like when I was in my countryside house and I was so scared of two explosions, we had to run away. I was reading the group chat with my friends and they were telling like, you know, my my house is shaken or I just heard a very loud explosion or my sky is red now. And, and of course you, you want some kind of support, but I'm not, you know, an IR major. But as our president said, partly the blood of Ukrainians might be also on their hands as they are to, to scared to confront Putin, who, who seems actually scared of this measure. What about the, you know, this is true in the United States. Um, it's also true all over Western Europe. You know, the the politicians, some of them of the, the far right and some of them of the left who have been supportive of or tolerant of Putin over the last uh, 15 years. You know, the most famous in the United States, of course, is Donald Trump, uh, who also had his own uh, very upsetting interactions with President Zelensky that, of course, led to his impeachment. But there's, you know, a bunch in, in Europe, too, whether it's uh, Le Pen or, or uh, Viktor Orban or the, uh, a bunch of the right-wing parties in Italy and Spain. Has this been sort of noticed in Ukraine that, that Putin has a, 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 an attraction to a lot of people in democratic countries who should know better? I'm not an expert in the European politics. Actually, for a long time, I, I just wasn't invested at all. I knew only like the big names names of some of the parties. But yes, recently, a lot of people did notice that he buys politicians, as simple as that, like whether with Gazprom places or with some other influence. I don't know much about that, but it's not up to the doubt that this exists, that some politicians, you know, maybe they just, you know, love Russian culture so much or like his ideas so much. I'm not sure whether all of the politicians you listed were like bought by him, but they clearly sympathize him. I was really surprised by some of the U.S. politicians talking. You know, Ukraine is in a sovereign country. Even I think. Whom have you noticed saying that? I remember watching Tulsi Gabbard video, uh-huh. and I was I was really scared to an extent by you know she's smiling and she's saying that straight up Russian propaganda, but like with smiling face. And uh, and I, I just, I, I couldn't believe in what I 
her, you know, I don't remember what she said, uh, but there was, you know, likely a bunch of neo-Nazis or something, which isn't true, especially like if you know the history of Ukraine. Yes, uh, there are some people who who are far right, but actually, if you've seen like what's going on in Germany or other European states, there's a lot of far rightism. Even in the U.S., I've heard like in Florida, they had like a straight up Nazi rally which is like in Ukraine, the, the Nazi symbolics are banned. So if they see you with, I don't know, Stastika, you go to prison where you have some criminal liability. So it would be impossible to have a rally like this here, an open rally, of course. So I'm curious, your your life in the Czech Republic what language do you use in just talking to people on the street? I mean, Ukrainian or Russian and Czech are not really mutually intelligible. Do you is what do you use? I mean, I've been here for like three or four days. I, I've studied Czech a little bit when I was thinking of going here to study, but then I decided to stay in Kharkiv. Uh, but I speak English mostly. I use some of the Czech phrases, but once again, I I almost forgotten it. Uh, but if I decide to stay here, I will probably have to learn it because, uh, I mean, it's the country where I would live, so I would have to learn it. It would be simply um, disrespectful not to learn uh, the language of the country where I live. But I, I'm not sure yet. This is a great country. It's it's full of very nice people and an interesting culture. Like so, but I'm still thinking on on what is. Uh, the direction of mine. Before I let you go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your father. Uh, I understand he's still in Ukraine. Yes, my father, he actually lives in Saltivka, which is, which I mentioned, it's one of the um, districts that they bombed the most. He was able to get out of his city. He's currently in another place. Uh, which is relatively safe, but it's in Ukraine. And men above 18 and before 60 and younger than 60, they cannot leave Ukraine unless they have some conditions uh, that allow them to. But he cannot leave Ukraine. He's in a relatively uh, safe place. So I'm not as worried about him as I was when he was in that district. But still, you know, I'm worried. And I'm worried about my stepfather, who is also there. And of course, I'm worried about all of my friends who are currently in Ukraine, but I, I really hope for the best. And that's not just the worst. I, I do hope that everything will be okay and I cannot think otherwise. Well, we are going to leave it there. Uh, Katerina, thank you so much for joining us and uh, best of luck to you and your family where we will be thinking about you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you once again. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode, well, was me. We did it so suddenly that I just recorded it myself. So listen, people, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast, and that means getting out and tweeting episodes like this. It means, you know, sharing us on all the socials, doing all the stuff, and 
leaving a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.